I want to say uh, good morning to everyone here. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point. It's great to have all of you here. Uh, you know, I was just thinking as we were, as we were singing, I don't know, my mind wanders sometimes when, when I'm singing with all of you. I don't, does that happen to you guys, or are you like totally thinking about Jesus the whole time? Y- yeah. So I was just thinking about how stressful this time of year can be for, for many people, moms, and, uh, and dads, too. I know some of you dads are working overtime at your jobs. It's like a busy season for you at work. There's, you know, there's family things going on. Some of you are having health issues and things like that. And there's just a lot of things to be thinking about and worried about and anxious about. Uh, you know, the Packers are playing later today, I heard. I guess it's an important game. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers is back. Um, listen, all I, I'm, I just want to acknowledge this is... Uh, there's a lot of things we could be thinking about right now, but I just want to ask for your attention for the next 30 minutes, all right, because this is a, and I'm, I'm not saying this for my sake, all right, this is an important time for us when we gather every, every week to sing together, to offer God our praises, to hear from God's word. I truly believe that if you will listen and, and engage yourself with God's word and, and believe it and, and do something and act on it. It'll change your life. It'll change your life. This, whatever stress you're dealing with in your life right now, whatever anxiety, whatever troubles you're facing, are, are no match for God. And so um, this is a significant time. It's just a significant time. I feel like sometimes I just have to remind you of that, you know? Uh, I think you already know that, but sometimes I need to remind myself of that. So, so there you go. <laughs> We're in a series right now called Heaven Came Down. And we're talking, we're looking at, for three weeks, we're just looking at the three big announcements that God gave leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're looking at the people he announced this news to, and uh, who they were, and what they did, and, and things like that. Last week, last week we talked about uh, what, it, what it's like to wait for God, and how hard it is to wait for God. And I know that many of you have been waiting for God to do something in your life, or you've been praying to God for something and asking him to do something, and just waiting and waiting, and it seems like maybe he hasn't answered, and and you're waiting for him to come through for you. And that can be so, so difficult, because the temptation for us is that when God doesn't answer, and when he doesn't respond the way that we want him to, we just want to take matters into our own hands and, and make something happen on our own. And as we saw last week, that just never leads anywhere good. Even though we keep doing it and we keep thinking, we just got to, you know, we got to, you know, take the bull by the horns and just make something happen. It's always better to wait for God. It's always better to wait for God to move and to let him move and to let him do what he said he's going to do. Today, though, we're going to talk about something that might be even harder than waiting for God, and that is submitting to God. Do you know how hard it is to submit yourself to God when you don't know what the outcome's going to be? I don't know, maybe you've heard, maybe you've heard God's word and, and you know that God was asking you to do something in your life, or you just knew God wanted you to take that step. But you knew that if you did it, it would be risky. It might cost you something. And you weren't sure what was going to happen. I mean, the future is totally uncertain. If you go that direction and you, you go the way God wants you to go, I mean, everything could just come unraveled. And, and you don't really know what the outcome's going to be, but you know that's what God wants you to do. And so sometimes what happens is we, God tells us to do something, or we, know, we feel God you know, leading us somewhere to, to a place that's really uncomfortable. And what happens is sometimes we freeze. We, we just don't move 
because we don't know what the outcome's going to be. And so, so what happens is anytime that God speaks to us, anytime he, we, we're confronted with God's word, we have a choice. I can either do what God says and leave the outcome to God, just leave it up to him and not worry about it, or I can stay safe and, you know, not do it and just stay safe, try to stay in control, you know, keep, keep my outcome, you know, somewhat manageable because if nothing changes, you know, I can handle that because I'm used to the way things are. And so that's the challenge for us is, is are we going to submit to God and, and take the step and take the risk and leave the outcome to him or are we going to stay safe and stay the same? Which is, which is better? And so today that's what we're going to talk about as we look at the second announcement that God made. Last week we, looked, we talked about uh, the angel Gabriel went to Zechariah the priest and told Zechariah, this old man, that his old wife, who was barren, was going to have a child. Their first child. And this child was going to be special. He was going to turn many people in Israel back to God and it changed their life. And it changed the entire nation of Israel because the child was John the Baptist who would prepare the way for Jesus, right? Today we're going to look at where the angel Gabriel went next. He actually went to a relative of Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, the angel Gabriel made another announcement, and that's what we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 26. And this is what the word of the Lord says. In the sixth month... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, let's just pause there for a minute, and I just want to tell you a little bit about Mary before we move on. Mary was Somewhere between 12 and 14 years old, scholars believe. Some, something like 12 to 14 years old. That is about the, the average age that a woman would become betrothed to a man in this culture. 12 to 14 years old, which is really crazy to think about today. When I think about my 13-year-old daughter and how unready she is for something like that. Mary lived in a little town called Nazareth, which was population measured in the hundreds, not thousands. And one day this angel visits her. And some people have a hard time with this idea that an angel visited Mary and that she could hear and see this angel, right? That, but that's not even the amazing thing about this, is the angel. I mean, that's, an angel is just a messenger from God. That's what an angel is. That's how, that's how we know angels, is they're messengers from God. That's what they do, is they bring people a message and they, you know, carry out God's commands. The amazing thing about this, this interaction is that Mary's really a nobody, she has no credentials, she has no education, she's poor, she's, uh, she lives on the fringes of society, she lives in a, in a podunk town. Um, I, I read one commentator who said she's uh, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. That's Mary. And the God of the universe who's about to do something he's never done before and reveal himself in a way he never has before and fulfill a promise that he's been making for thousands of years chooses to tell uh, this teenage girl about it and to use her to do it. That's the amazing thing, is that God actually appears by, through this angel to speak to Mary about this. Why her? And yet the angel says to her, you are highly favored by God, and the Lord is with you. So let's listen to the rest of the announcement. 
Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Wow, so what does it mean that Mary was highly favored by God? What does it mean that Mary was highly favored by God? There's uh, a lot of people have misunderstood the angel's message to Mary over the, over the years, over the centuries. And so what many traditions hold is that Mary was actually a, a woman who was full of grace and she was someone who could dispense grace to other people. But that's actually not what the text says. The text says that God showed her grace. She was an object of God's grace, okay, not a source of God's grace. So there's no, there is no biblical evidence whatsoever that we should pray to Mary or, or that Mary can give us any kind of grace. What, this, what the text is actually saying about Mary is that God was showing her undeserved kindness. Okay, Mary wasn't perfect. She wasn't like, um, worthy of the task of carrying the Messiah. Okay, this was undeserved kindness that was showed to her by God. In fact, Martin Luther paraphrased Gabriel's greeting this way. He said, Oh Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. And that's a really great way to describe this message. And that actually tells us something about God. And so what we're going to do this morning as we, as we go through the text is we're just going to ask three questions. What, is the, what does this uh, message tell us about God? What does it tell us about Mary, and what does it tell us about Jesus? I think those are the three most important questions that I could ask this morning as we go through this together. So what does the text teach us about God? Here's what I think that this text teaches us about God more than anything else. Is that God loves to show his power through weakness. God loves to to take people, he loves to take people who are weak and, and lowly and vulnerable and do some of his greatest work through them. And we see this over and over and over again in the Bible. In fact, this isn't the first time that God used the faith of a teenager to deliver a nation. And uh, in fact, the other, the other teenager I'm thinking of is mentioned in the text, David. Jesus was a direct descendant of David. And about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus... Something happened in David's life that you all know about. It's the story of David and Goliath. So, and I, I'm not going to, you know, read the story. I think most of you are familiar with the story. I'll just give you the cliff notes. Uh, Goliath, of course, was a, a Philistine from Gath. He was their champion. And Israel was facing off in the Valley of Elah against the Philistines. And they had recently won a battle, so this was payback time for the Philistines. And they sent forth their champion, Goliath, and it was a representative battle. In other words, 
If Goliath wins the battle, it's a one-on-one. If Goliath wins, the Philistines take Israel as their slaves and all their plunder. And if the Israelites win, they take the Philistines and, as their slaves and everything. And Israel wins. If, 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 they, if, if Goliath wins, Philistine, Philistia wins. And if Israel's champion wins, Israel wins. And so Goliath came out twice a day for 40 days. And he's a, he's a giant guy. He's, the scholars believe he's probably about six foot nine. And in the text in 1 Samuel 17, we actually have the longest description in the whole Bible of military attire. There's like five verses that just describe Goliath's weapons and his armor. And what it amounted to was 150 pounds he had on him. He had 150 pounds he was wearing, just in armor. So he must have been huge. I mean, if you think about Andre the Giant, who had, you know, he had this disease called gigantism where there's a, a, a hyper-secretion of growth hormone and that's maybe what Goliath had. And Andre the Giant was 7 feet, 540 pounds. That's probably, I mean, Goliath might have been that big. He might have been, a, you know, that huge. He's wearing 150 pounds of armor and weapons and, and he comes out and the, the whole description of Goliath, which is a really long paragraph of description of what he looked like, the only reason we have that is not because it's interesting. The reason we have that in the, in the Old Testament is, to, is the, the narrator is trying to make a point. He's trying to say, this man epitomizes strength. Goliath is the essence of strength. He seemed invincible in the eyes of everyone who was there that day. That's why we have the description. Nobody looked like him. Nobody was as big as him. Nobody was as, as protected as him. And here he stands, you know, taunting the army of Israel. And then, on the other side of the camp, on Israel's camp, this teenage boy, who was probably about the same age as Mary is when we meet her, shows up at the camp. He's not a soldier. He's a shepherd. His dad just sent him out with food for his three older brothers. And he just happened to show up on, the, on one of the days, on the 40th day, that Goliath was taunting the armies of Israel. And he, he shows up with food. He's not there to fight. He's not a soldier. He's not even old enough to enlist. He has no, he has no military weapons or clothing. He, you know, he's dressed like a shepherd. He had walked 15 miles that morning to get to the Israel, Israel's camp. And there's Goliath. And he starts asking questions. What, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? What will the king do for the man who takes him on? And, you know, you know the story, right? Everyone in the Israelite camp saw one thing. They saw, they saw the invincibility of Goliath. They saw this giant man who's stronger than anyone else. Who could possibly take him on? And the only thing that David had going for him was that he saw what nobody else saw. He saw what God saw. He looked at Goliath. He looked him up and down. And he decided Goliath doesn't even have a chance. Nobody else saw it but David. And so David goes out. And, and you know what? I don't have to tell you the rest of the story. You know what happens, Right? But do you know what the point of that story is? Some people, they read that story, and we, we hear people talk about David and Goliath, and we hear, we hear, you know, lessons, even children's lessons, you know. You can face your giants. You're strong enough. Just, you know, just believe. You can, you can beat anything. Just have faith. You know, that might sound really good. It does sound good, doesn't it? But that's not the point of the story. The point of that story, the point of the story of David and Goliath 
is the weakness of God. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. That's what this story is about. God loves to show his power through weakness. There was not a weaker person that God could have chosen in all of Israel's camp to face Goliath that day. He didn't choose the king. He didn't choose a soldier. He didn't choose, you know, a marksman. He chose the shepherd boy. That's the point of the story. In fact, in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, the apostle Paul wrote, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Where's the weakness of God in 1 Samuel 17? It's David. David is the weakness of God. God does not judge by appearances like we do, right? He doesn't. That's, in fact, uh, he said that to Samuel in the chapter before David and Goliath. He doesn't judge. He doesn't look at the outside. He's not intimidated by how people look or how they talk. He looks at the heart. He measures people by what's in their hearts. Okay, God's power, God's power looks like weakness to us. That's what it looks like to us. It doesn't look like Goliath. It looks like submission. It looks like Mary, a teenage girl in a small town with nothing but faith. That's God's power. In Isaiah 66 two, God said, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Okay, God doesn't need people who are highly credentialed and well-trained and educated and uh, ambitious to accomplish his purposes. He only needs people who believe him and act on his word. That's all God needs. It doesn't matter how weak they are. It doesn't matter how uneducated they are, how unprepared they are. As long as they're ready to believe and to do what God says. That's all that, that's all that matters. So what does this tell us about Mary? What does this uh, message tell us about Mary? What did it mean for Mary to submit herself to God's plan? Okay, this the angel Gabriel is giving Mary, a, a, you know, here's your, here's your future plan, the plan for your life. Here's my plan for you. What did it mean for Mary to submit herself to God's plan? Well, she would have to, first of all, She's a teenager, and she's betrothed or engaged to Joseph, so she would have to somehow tell Joseph and his family that she's pregnant. That wouldn't be fun. I don't, how did that happen? Uh, that could be very difficult. It could invite disgrace. Um, and, and by the way, engagement is not something in, in ancient culture here where you can just break it off, you know? It's not, this is binding, their engagement. It's not like, Joseph could just break up with her and be like, hey, can I have my letter jacket back? Or can I have my, remember that mixtape I made you? I just, can I, I I'm, I'm done, you know? I mean, it didn't, it didn't work that way. There was, there was the only way you could, you could break this off is through divorce. You had to legally divorce because the engagement was considered binding. And it would have to be public. And so there's actually a lot to lose here. She would, uh, she would have to carry a child without being married in a patriarchal shame and honor culture, which would invite suspicion, accusations, and possibly ridicule. In fact, having sex before marriage in ancient Jewish culture was akin to adultery, which means she could have actually been burned alive or stoned to death. And at the very least, she would have been ostracized. 
from her own people. And not only that, but here's something I didn't really think about until this last week as I was thinking about this. Here's Mary being told, you're going to have a son and he's going to be great and all this, you know, amazing things about your son. And she doesn't know that someday she's going to have to watch her firstborn son be crucified. While she stands, just within feet of Jesus, her son, as he talks to her tenderly while he's hanging on the cross, suffocating, dying, being tortured. She's going to have to watch that someday. That's what it means for Mary to submit herself to God's plan. And now listen to, Mary, listen to Mary's response to the angel's announcement. It's pretty amazing. In verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. That's it. <laughs> I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Let it, let it, let it all happen to me. Whatever's going to happen, let it happen. That's trust. That's submission. That's humility. That's the person who finds favor with God. That's a person that knows that God is with her, no matter what. There's no other way she could have said yes to all that unless she knew God was going to be with her, which the angel said, God is with you. She can submit herself to God's future, even though she doesn't know what it looks like. And don't forget, she's like 14 years old. So we're, we're going to come back to that response in just a couple minutes. Before we do, let's talk about what the text tells us about Jesus. Okay, we got to, and this is something we, we want to do every week, is talk about what, what the passage tells us about Jesus Christ. So we know that his name's going to be Jesus, which is actually not the name that Mary heard. Jesus is the Latin translation from the Hebrew word Yeshua, which in, translated in English is Joshua, which means God saves. So that's the name that Mary would have heard is, is Yeshua, which is, she, you know, she would have thought of Joshua, and that's the name that means, you know, deliverance, um, strength. And that's what his name was going to be. The angel also said he will be great. He will be the son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his father, David. His reign, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, it's the house of Israel, and his kingdom will never end. Now, what Gabriel says about Jesus is, if you were here last week, you heard the pronouncement about the, John the Baptist. The, the, the announcement about Jesus is way superior in every single way. Okay, Jesus is going to be the son of the most high God. He's going to be a king whose throne never ends. He's going to reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And all of this language points to one thing, that Jesus is going to be God's Messiah. This son of Mary is going to be the Messiah king that God had promised for hundreds and even thousands of years to the nation of Israel. He was, all the promises were going to be fulfilled through this child, is what the angel is saying. He's going to reign forever over everyone. That's what it means. Now, here's the thing Mary didn't know, which I've already said. She didn't know that one day she was going to have to watch her son be crucified. Like all the Jews of her day, Mary believed that, her, that, that the Messiah, the Messiah that God promised, when he came, he was going to show up in military or political might. And he was going to save Israel in a very tangible way from Israel's oppressors. Just like King David delivered Israel on the day that he conquered Goliath, this Messiah was going to come 
as a descendant of David, and he was going to deliver Israel from her giants of her day, like Rome. And Israel would, want, would, would again be a superpower and enjoy peace, like during the reign of David and Solomon. That's what Mary's thinking. She's thinking, my son is going to be this great military political leader, you know, like David was, even better than David. That's what all of Israel was expecting. Except that's not what the angel meant, is it? That's not what the angel meant at all. The angel did say that Jesus would be great. But what does it mean that Jesus would be great? What does greatness mean to Jesus? Okay, well, Jesus, like David, was born in Bethlehem, the smallest of the towns of Judah. He was raised in Nazareth, an isolated rural town with a population of about 200 His family was poor, and he made his living as a carpenter. He was unimpressive physically. Even after he began his ministry, Jesus lived in poverty, just wandering from place to place. He never wrote a book. He never ran for political office. He never traveled far from home. Rather than seek out wealthy and influential people to fund his movement, he went out of his way to spend the majority of his time with social outcasts, the poor, the marginalized, the sick, the weak. He rescued people, he healed people, and he gave everything he had. He served. He never chased status or fame, and he died with his hands and feet nailed to a Roman cross as a peasant criminal. 2 Corinthians 13.4 says he was crucified in weakness. So that's, that's what greatness is, right? Jesus Life began and ended in weakness. He lived by the power of God, right? He lived by the power of God, but his life began and ended in weakness until the resurrection. He was not the Messiah that anyone expected. So this is what greatness meant for Jesus. I want you to hear this passage from Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, as we think about greatness in the life of Jesus. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. What does this mean for us? Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now that's what greatness is. That's what the angel meant. Greatness is God coming down to serve, to serve us. That's greatness. Jesus said that to his disciples once when they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to get to sit next to Jesus when he ascends into heaven. And Jesus is like, if you want to be great, you have to become the least among you. If you want to be great, you have to serve. That's what I came to do is to give my life as a ransom For many and to serve people. That's what Jesus did. That's how he lived. So what the here's the point. You you can trust Jesus, and this is this is so important. When you're thinking about what God wants you to do in your life, whatever that thing is, what's what's the thing that God you know God wants you to do, but you're not sure how to take that first step, or you're not sure what the future looks like if you do it. Here's what you need to know about Jesus is that he can be trusted with your life. Do you know why? 
Because he understands our lowly position. He understands your weaknesses. He understands your struggles. He understands your temptations. He went through it. He's been through the temptations. He's been through the accusations. He's been through the disappointments. He's been through the pain. He's been through the suffering. He's been through the sorrows. He's been through the fears and all the anxieties. He's been through it all. He's been tested beyond what all of us have been tested, and he stood the test. He never sinned. Why? So that he could be our faithful high priest, so that he could help us when we are tested, when we're afraid, when we're under the weight of anxiety, when we're not sure if we can do that thing that God asked us to do. We can do it. We can trust Jesus with our future because he's been through it all. And he stood the test as our faithful high priest. That's greatness, isn't it? That's greatness. You know what's great about salvation and about all these messages we've been talking about? Is that the supreme God, creator of the universe, you know, he could have distanced himself from us and just watched as we struggled and strived to try to figure out how to get into his presence. And, you know, know, just laughed at us and, and squashed us. You know, because there's no way we could ever get into God's presence. We have nothing to offer God. We have nothing to boast in. We have nothing. Instead, God came down. Instead, God considered our lowly estate and our weaknesses, and he became flesh. And he took a body. And he lived a humble life so that he could be our faithful high priest. And that's how we know that Jesus Christ can be trusted with our future. That's how you know you can say yes to Jesus no matter what he's asking you to do. And it's going to be okay. So listen to Jesus' invitation to us, and I'll leave you with this passage this morning from Matthew chapter 11. And this is what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Submitting to God is always worth it, my friends. Waiting for God is always worth it. Submitting to God is always worth it. What does this text say about you? Maybe we should ask that question. What does the text say about you? What does it say about me? What would it look like for you to submit yourself completely to God the way that Mary did? For you to say, God, whatever the future is, whatever you want me to do, I'm in. I'm in. No matter what the cost is. You know why that's so important? Because there's a lot of people who are coming to church today or they're doing some kind of, you know, going through some religious routine or spiritual exercises, whatever you want to call them. You know, they're praying, they're doing whatever they do to to feel good about themselves and to play the game, but they're not experiencing the true power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not experiencing real transformation in their life. And the reason is that they have put conditions on God. You and I have put conditions on God. We have all said to God, God, okay, I'll do the thing as long as fill in the blank. 
as long as I can keep my job, as long as I can, you know, keep my marriage, as long as my kids turn out okay, as long as we can maintain this lifestyle that we enjoy right now, as long as I don't have to give up this or this or this, right? Have you ever said something like that to God? You know, as long as, you know, you get up to a point with God and you're like, okay, I'm not ready to take that step yet because if I do, I might have to give something up. Well, (laughs) that's true. But what you're going to get in return is so much better. It's so much better. And so we have to be like Mary and say, God, here I am. Here's my life. I'll, I'll accept whatever you bring into my life. I'll endure it. With patience, whether I like it or not, whether I understand it or not, God, I'm here to do your will, whatever it is. So how have you responded to God's word in your life? Have you submitted yourself completely to God to do whatever he's asked you to do? Or have you settled for a safe life and a manageable future that requires little faith and no real risk? That's not discipleship. Following Jesus is always risky, and it's always worth it. Submitting to God is always worth it, no matter what the cost. So I have to ask you, what would it look like for you to step out in bold faith today in response to what you know to be God's word in your life? What would that look like for you? Are you willing to take that risk on God? Are you willing to say yes to him? Are you willing to just go to God and say, God, look, I know I've lived my life you know, this way for this long, and I'm not worried about the past anymore. I know you're God over my past and my future. So God, I am here. I am here to do your will today. I will accept whatever you bring into my life. I will accept your future for me, even though I don't know what it looks like. Even though I don't have, and I know that I don't have any control over it anyway. So God, I come to you this morning, and I give you my life. Will you give me your life? Will you give me your life? And I promise you, if you come to, the, to God this morning and you pray a prayer like that and you mean it, he will hear you and answer. He will. He knows your heart. He already knows it. He already knows everything about you. There's nothing you could tell him about yourself. You don't, he doesn't already know. And he already knows your future too. And it's the best future you could ever have. So will you take that step today? Will you say to God, God, here I am your servant. Here I am your servant. I accept whatever it is you want to bring into my life. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that um, you, give us, you give us great examples like Mary and David and others in your word who uh, really, on the surface of things, were nothing special. There's nothing, there's nothing magnificent or special about Mary. There's nothing magnificent or special about David. They just had a heart that was willing to do whatever you said to do. And that's the kind of heart that we want, God. We, want, we, want to, we present ourselves this morning to you as your people, God, and we want to do your will. We want to do whatever it is you, you ask us to do and not worry about the future because the future is in your hands. So God, we give ourselves to you, and I pray for anyone here this morning who's, who's hanging on to some control in their life or hanging on to some, some picture of the future that they think they need. 
or that they think they're going to have, and I ask that you would help them to take a step with you and to believe, God, that your future for them is better than any future they could carve out for themselves. I pray that you would give us faith, God, and that you would change us and that you would do awesome things through us. And there's nothing special about us, God. We are, we are weak and poor people just like Mary. And we ask, God, that you would use us to do something great and that you would let us experience your power too. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, would you please rise? I'm going to give you the benediction this morning. From the book of Hebrews. And before I do, I feel like, I'm, let me just say this about the baby dedication that just popped into my head. Um, the baby dedication happening on January 21st, we're really excited about. But for those of you who've, who have never been to a baby dedication and you're thinking, what is that about? Like, I had my baby baptized, or why don't you guys baptize babies? So we don't baptize babies. We baptize, um, we baptize children and, and people who are older than children who have, sorry, who have decided to follow Jesus and who have made that decision for themselves because we believe that people should choose to be baptized and that it should be public, and so that's how we celebrate baptism. But so for, for, for babies and for children, we dedicate them to the Lord. We don't dunk them in water or anything. We just bring them up on stage, and the parents are up here, and, um, and some of the leaders of the church. And it's really a, an opportunity. So it's not, it's not like a, something that's in the Bible, like you see, read about baby dedications. What it is, is it's a great opportunity for parents to say to their church and to their children, we want our children to be in God's hands. We want, our, we want to give our child into God's hands. And we want God's future for our child. We believe our child is a blessing from the Lord and that the best, the best life for our child is a life following God. That's what the children get to do. Or that's what the parents get to do. And they do it in front of the church. It's like a confession. And it's, um, it's really unique. And every parent says something different. And they pick out a verse that they, you know, kind of assign to their child. And, and that's always interesting. And, um, and then it's also an opportunity for the church to stand with the parents and to say, we're in this with you. And it's an opportunity for the parents to say, we can't do this alone. Because nobody's called to parent their kids on their own. Amen? I mean, we'd all be in big trouble if that were the case. Um, myself for sure. So that's just a way for the church and the, and the parents to say, we're in this together and we need support as we raise our child. And the church is saying, we're going to give you that support for as long as you'll let us in. And it's really a meaningful, memorable service every year when we do it. So if you have any questions, feel free to talk to me. But it doesn't just have to be babies. We've dedicated children too. If you've never dedicated your, your babies and now they're like, you know, 3, 4, 5, 10, 15, you know, we'll dedicate any of your children if that's what you want to do. So just something to think about as we look forward to that service coming up in a month. So here's the benediction this morning. Uh, please bow your heads with me. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.